0: to Capital Locust, the local government finance podcast from the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Talking local globally. This podcast explores the ideas and thinking about the role of local government finance as an accelerator of international development in line with the Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Agreement.
1: Welcome to the first episode of Capital Locust. For this first episode of Capital Locust, it is a great privilege and pleasure to talk to Professor Raghuram Rajan, distinguished professor of finance at the University of Chicago, former governor of the Reserve Bank of India, and former chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. Raghuram Rajan is also author of The Third Pillar, how markets and state leave the community behind. What is interesting is that coming from a former chief economist of the International Monetary Fund, in the third pillar, how markets and state leave the community behind, Ragodan Rajan is starting to look at a third element, if you like, beyond markets and beyond state, which is the community element and to some extent the local government element. We at the United Nations Capital Development Fund are also arguing that there has to be a third pillar to the world's financial system. We argue that the global financial ecosystem as it currently stands works well for countries, for nation states, who have a monopoly of taxation and who can borrow with sovereign guarantees and therefore cheap access to global capital markets. Also, few would argue that the global financial ecosystem works well for big businesses, large companies, and large private sector institutions who can move their capital around with relative ease these days and who can shift their tax liabilities from place to place. However, the global financial ecosystem does not really work for local governments, city governments, rural local governments. And yet, we are depending on these institutions, we are depending on local governments to build the climate resilient world that will secure our future on this planet. If you think about the investments that need to be made to really build in climate adaptation to the urban infrastructure and the rural infrastructure, it's local governments that are defining those investments and quite often doing those investments, if not authorizing those investments and planning those investments. If you think about the rapid urbanization that is taking place in Africa and parts of Southeast Asia, where the urban population is currently between 30 to 40 percent, depending on the country, and is due to rise to up to 80 percent in the next 20 to 30 years assuming it follows the trends that have been followed by every other country or continent in our history. This urbanization will be huge, but the capital investment per capita in those cities is just not there. So what kind of cities will they be? Will they be resilient cities, livable cities? And if not, what effect will that have on global migration? Therefore, it is fundamental for our survival on this planet that we manage to develop a global financial ecosystem that works for cities and local governments alongside the financial ecosystems around national states and around private sector finance and the private sector in general. I'll be starting to explore these ideas uh, with um, Professor Raghuram Rajan, and these ideas will be behind the interviews and the discussions we will have in this first series of Capital Lowcast. Looking forward to hear what Professor Raghuram Rajan has to say. <music>
0: Thank you so much for joining the podcast. With regard to your publication, you have really identified the third pillar, the community, as well as the markets and the state, as an area that perhaps there has not been enough attention paid to. And we at the UN Capital Development Fund are very interested in opening up local fiscal space because we see that local governments in developing countries are really an effective way to accelerate the achievement of the sustainable development goals. For example, in Bangladesh, we're working with the regulator and the central bank on actually creating a domestic bond market for municipal finance, because we believe that's the only way that capital will be available, long-term capital at the right price for the type of infrastructure investments that. Uh, cities in Bangladesh are going to require to build their resilience into the future. So I wondered, uh, Professor, any reflections from your side on the relationship between local government and your reflection on the third pillar? Yeah, uh, I, I
2: do think that uh, local bodies are extremely important. I focus on the role of the community in preparing individuals. Uh, the globalized market, Uh, it seems strange, but the more the world integrates, the more local becomes important in preparing people for a world in which uh, much more is demanded of them in terms of skills, capabilities, health, and so on. And the value of uh, local initiatives is they are much more attuned to what people need it's very hard for the central government or, or uh, regional governments to understand uh, exactly what the, the opportunities that face people locally are, as well as what the impediments to their obtaining the capabilities are. So I believe that uh, more local initiatives are needed. And of course, uh, to get those in place, whether they be uh, the building of local schools or the building of uh, of local infrastructure, to open up uh, areas of economic activity, uh, people there know better. And uh, so more local governance, funded bonds, and so on, would be beneficial to help prepare people for the globalized world we live
0: in. Thank you so much, uh, Professor. And one of the problems we're facing in this coalition for the global financial ecosystem that works for cities and local governments is the problem of contingent liability of central governments to local government borrowing and the various regulations put on states by the Bretton Woods institutions. I mean, I'll give you an, an example. We find within some countries, when we're looking at how we can work with their cities on a domestic capital market development for city debt, for example, That, in one way or another, even if it's borrowed locally, sometimes counts against that country's debt ratio because the central government is seen to have a contingent liability on that debt, even if it's not borrowed on the international market. And we're looking at ways to actually free that up because we believe that without really expanding local fiscal space, it'll not be possible to get the access to capital required for the infrastructure required in these rapidly urbanizing uh, countries. Any considerations from your side on that? I mean, currently, it's a zero-sum game, it seems, that central governments don't like expanding the capital markets the local governments because it reduces their own ability to borrow.
2: Well, uh, there are the more concerns with those contingent uh, liabilities. For one, of course, as you said, the central government uh, doesn't want to let local bodies borrow if it impinges on its own space. But second, uh, when it does let them borrow, it puts uh, enormous conditions on them because, of course, it is responsible for repayment. So uh, ideally, uh, it would make sense for local governments to have more direct access to financing. And, and the easiest way this would happen without hitting uh, national governments is if it is a entirely self-contained, viable commercially viable local project, which satisfies investors that that it is viable and they don't need recourse to uh, additional guarantees from the central government. Now, this requires a lot of transparency on the part of local bodies in terms of what their own financing is, what uh, kinds of uh, revenue streams they have access to, how Will those revenue streams be be partitioned into payments for services as well as payments to financials? and uh, what kind of visibility investors have over that? So it really requires local bodies to come clean on their finances to show a history of responsible finance, but also uh, ensure ways that their revenue streams can be appropriately partitioned and will reassure investors. So both uh, in terms of uh, any legal changes that are required to do this, as well as clarity uh, from the side of the municipality uh, or the local body about what it's doing and uh, about its future prospects. All this is, is going to be useful to reassure investors. But I absolutely agree that local finance
0: should be untied from national finance. That's a very useful um, reply, and we're working on some of these examples uh, along the lines you discussed. And, of course, one problem with them, and whilst you can ring-fence the revenue and you can isolate it in that way, then you end up getting a uh, kind of development by project rather than uh, overarching holistic infrastructure plans for the whole city. And so another way around it is subnational development banks, which are sometimes owned by the Ministry of Finance or the central bank, and they borrow with the sovereign guarantee on behalf of local governments, or at least pool the risks amongst local governments. Uh, we recently worked with the government on Nepal to activate their um, subnational development bank. I wonder if you have any considerations on those. If you, I mean, they, so far they don't really play a major role in economic development of countries, and perhaps they
2: could do. They are one alternative, but... You know, one of the concerns with any movement upwards in the financing is whether it, again, starts impinging on the national sort of debt capacity because, of course, the national government will be responsible for some of these subnational development banks. And so, yes, you get the benefit of risk pooling, but still the contingent liability moves on to the national balance sheet. The other worry, once again, is whether subnational banks can have the kind of of local sensitivity. My guess is there are an alternative that should be explored. But also, I think it's not necessary that local government bonds uh, always be tied to projects. To the extent that there are projects, that would be an easier way of financing for the local government because the lender then becomes confident about the revenues tied to the project, and it also allows for a second pair of eyes, the lender, to assess the commercial viability of the project. One of the problems, as you know, that investors think about is whether some of the projects that local governments start are commercially viable and are in the long-run interest of the community. Project by project allows them better evaluation. That said... There are other sources of revenue for the local government which can be pledged, you know, tax receipt bonds and so on. The concern, again, overall has to be uh, whether the community, the municipality is living according to its means. It doesn't make sense to promise all revenues uh, in the future to, to bond repayment and have nothing left over for community services, etc. So once again, I think the broader point is clarity about finances, both current, past, and future.
0: Thank you so much indeed. they very helpful, Professor. And I think maybe as we move to the end of the interview, would you like to uh, comment a little bit on your publication, The Third Pillar, and how you see that interfaces with this local government argument? I mean, you talk a lot about communities as the third pillar. So... How do you see the role of local governments in your analysis in your recent book?
2: So the the broader point of the book is that over uh, recent, of the recent past, uh, as we've got the expansion in markets with technological change, markets cover entire nations and now the entire world, government also tends to grow with it. And uh, even while uh, both markets and uh, governments grow to, you know, transnational governments, the requirement that communities pose, that that the markets pose on individuals, has been increasing. It used to be in the past that uh, being literate was enough in emerging markets uh, to get many of the jobs that were available. Today, a, a high school degree barely cuts it. I mean, If we look at industrial countries, a bachelor's degree in most countries is what is required to get a decent job. And so given that the demands for education and skill, uh, skills continue increasing from the market, you need to have a better ability to provide it. And what I argue in the book is a lot of the provision of capabilities, whether it's healthcare, whether it's values, whether it is education, uh, essentially start at the community level. And if the community is not strong enough to provide it, it becomes very hard to do it through other sources, through national institutions and so on. Uh, And therefore, it is important that we have healthy communities in order to be able to help people in this more competitive, globalized world. And it's true whether it's emerging markets or industrial countries, and there's lots of evidence suggesting that the kind of community you grow up in and the kind of capabilities you acquire makes an enormous difference in your life chances. So the evidence is there. The problem is much of our effort, and uh, uh, this is where I congratulate you, much of our effort is typically at the national level Uh, How do we have a new education program which uplifts people when, in fact, uh, much of the actual uh, nuts and bolts of how it is done is at a much lower level? And the problem national programs have is they're not sensitive to local conditions. And that is why I insist again and again, we need far more activity at the local level driven by local governments monitored by local people,
0: which ensure that these are exactly what they need. Exactly, Professor. I mean, one of the things that we're arguing for in our programs is how the role that local governments can play in very spatially specific vocational training. I mean, you make the point that all economics is socioeconomics. And I think we in UN Capital Development Fund also believe that one of the problems with the economic discipline is it's often spatially blind. It doesn't take into account territory, local characteristics, culture, etc. And so a big role that local governments can play combined with an investment program is in things like vocational training combined with the private sector operators in a particular industry to try to push, you know, push that, raise, raise the value of the labor force in particular localities. And there are some very good examples of where local governments have pursued purposeful local economic development strategies using concepts like clustering, et cetera. And they've really managed to raise the overall kind of value of the local economy within the space, so that the value chains circulate locally rather than being extractive value chains that extract the value out of the local economy. Uh, just um, to close, uh, Professor, what we always do at the end of this podcast is we ask uh, the uh, interviewees two binary questions, and they have to pick one, of the choices, they can expand on it or, or not. So the first binary question is uh, cricket or baseball. Uh, cricket. Okay, that's great. I think the second one. I mean, looking at your background and your profile, uh, Chicago or New York? <laughs> uh, <laughs>
2: New York. It's a it's a it's a great city, but you know, Chicago is a fantastic uh, city it's uh, neither the sort of uh, the new age of uh, of the west coast nor the commercial mindedness of new york
0: it's somewhere in between with west midwest values exactly no it's a very interesting case study I think for what you know local economies and local government can do, Professor Ragon, thank you so much for your time and um, we look forward to connecting with you. As we go forward, thank you so much indeed, Professor.
2: Of course, uh, thanks for having me.
0: Hope you enjoyed this episode. This is Capital Locust, the local government finance podcast from the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Thanks for listening. See you next week.